Welcome to the GateWorld Podcast. This is the GateWorld Podcast, and you are listening to episode number 63. I'm Darren. I'm David. And this is the show where two nerds finally talk about Stargate Universe. Yes, Air, parts one and two, tonight. Stay with us, it's going to be a good show, interesting show. Been looking forward to this for a long, long time. Everybody, you guys hopefully watched it uh, last Friday on Sci-Fi Channel or uh, Space, if you live in Canada. It was on Tuesday in the UK, and it's going to be airing, if you're in Australia, this Friday on Sci-Fi Australia. It's the two-hour premiere of the third Stargate television series, and those two hours are our main discussion topic today. How are you? I am doing very well, and people should be aware, of course, if they've been looking at GateWorld, they know that we've already reviewed this episode a while ago uh, and have been talking about it. So um, we can, I think, let the cat out of the bag that we're recording this early. Yes, it is true. We were very fortunate, thanks to our friends at MGM and Sci-Fi Channel, to get the press screeners for this a couple of weeks ago, and we watched these episodes, and we're talking about it a couple of weeks ago. The main discussion. So, where to begin with air? You know, At the beginning. Uh, it's a different kind of show, you know? We knew that it was going to be. It's a different kind of show than we've been podcasting about. We started podcasting episodes with the fifth season of Atlantis, and those... Those episodes, you know, the storytelling is is a bit different. It's a bit more straightforward. There's sort of a a single contained story in an episode that focuses on on a character or two sometimes, and there's a beginning and a middle and end and mm. and certain developments. And you know, it's it's plot driven, and so a lot of those little character moments sometimes get dropped. And universe is the exact same thing. It's not plot driven, and in fact. I think Air Part 2 especially is is rather slow-paced and there's not a whole lot going on and I think probably deliberately so from the writers' writers room. Uh, they decided that there shouldn't be a whole lot going on other than just these characters are all stuck in this big flying tin can and they're about to not be able to breathe anymore. It very much felt claustrophobic. It was slow. Uh, but you know what? I'm not upset at that. Mm-hmm. I think that it was... A breath of fresh air, pardon the pun, uh-huh. um, from uh, the normal goings on at Stargate. Everything's so action. I mean, just look at the uh, just look at Enemy at the Gate, the final episode of Atlantis. It was so so rushed, and they had to accomplish so much in it. That episode carried so many hats. Uh, this one doesn't, aside from the fact that it has to establish nine nine people, which it does. But I wanted really to start at the beginning of this, starting at the beginning of the show. Yep, that first shot. The visual effects in Stargate universe are like no visual effects I have ever seen for this franchise outside of Continuum. Really? They are, I in my that opinion... That says a lot. Do you disagree? I don't know that I disagree, but, but uh, it certainly is a, a very high claim. So tell me what you are thinking. I think that the shots are magnificent. The quality of, of, the, of the puddle... Uh, I mean, you notice it's silver now instead of uh, instead of blue. It's yeah. it's a bluer silver, silver gray puddle. Now now watch that. If you didn't notice it the first time, when we're in the Milky Way galaxy on yes. Icarus space, the puddle is blue. Yes. And when we get out into the other galaxies, it's silver gray. Blue has been the only constant in the Stargate franchise, you know, because the puddle has always been blue. So I think that's the reason the Gate World is blue, or I feel that way. Mm-hmm. And so I guess Gate World needs to go silver now. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, we kind of went black and gray with Stargate Universe a little bit. Yeah, we did. Darker show, darker sight. So that Starfield really took my breath away um, at the very beginning. And the next thing that I noticed that was so distinct uh, was the music. I've always thought that Joel was very good at what he did, uh, which was a a certain type of sound. This is not his sound. He has gone outside of the box on this one. He has gone into the universe on this one. It's almost like he's playing with different instruments. Yeah, yeah. Like he's went into an alien sound studio and is, and is messing around in an orderly fashion. So that was really disarming. And it's going to take some getting used to. But yeah, that's for sure. It's not that I didn't like it. It's just that it's very different. I noticed no opening theme per se. I'm hoping to hear... I'm hoping to recognize some notes that I'll be able to hum. Uh, But yeah, so enough about that. I think we have to watch the show a while until we start to recognize the cues that Joel is going to assign. I'm sure already has assigned to each character probably. So you've got ten characters here, including the ship. Yeah, now that's an interesting idea. That's an interesting idea that the ship is a character. And I want to come back to that. But um, yeah, the visual effects I think are, are beautiful. Opening with the Destiny dropping out of FTL. We're going to have to start using that instead of hyperspace. We don't really oh, have a name for man. it. man. They picked that one up. I've, I've heard that one on other sci-fi shows. It's like, wow, we're, we're just going right into it. I guess you know what? They're well, going to invent the wheel. It's faster than light travel, which is a generic term. It's, yep. And travel that's faster than light, but it's not through hyperspace, which I think is really interesting. Yep. It's, uh, it explains some things without explaining exactly how it works. But the fact that it's not just traveling through hyperspace explains how it can go from galaxy to galaxy relatively short periods of time and it looks like the ship has been going if you look at the the star map when they uh, start counting dots as the ship's log shows the the different galaxy points that it's been to as it after it departed earth and Mm. you you watch and then you start counting those beeps and it's it's i don't know like 20 or 30 probably and that's probably just in the first few years of its life yeah it's been places yeah so um, the puddle is different, and the audio effects are also different on the puddle. Did you notice yes. that when the when the wormhole kawooshes, there's a sound of almost like glass breaking? You know, I noticed that in the trailer, but I didn't notice it in the show. Hmm. Is that in the show? It is. I noticed it more pronounced in the trailer, actually. Yeah. But uh, it is in the show. So, you know, as I was watching Air Parts 1 and 2, the first thing that I noticed was how uh, non-linear the storytelling was. And non-linear storytelling is sort of uh, becoming a, a popular thing to do. Lost mm-hmm. really really got us going with non-linear storytelling, jumping back and forth uh, between a present-day storyline and flashbacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the case of Lost, usually for one particular character, at least in the beginning of the show. And then, uh, you know, I watch Define Gravity right now, and that, that does the same thing, but it's a fixed timeline of the present, and then a fixed timeline of five years ago, and both move seem to mo- be moving forward at the same pace, and it, it jumps back and forth. Interesting. So this was kind of all over the place, wasn't it? I didn't expect it to start off with that. I was expecting a linear storyline. That was one of the things that disarmed me from the beginning, is yeah. the back and forth in the pilot. And I would very much like to see a cut of it played in linear fashion. And I mean, I may, mm. I may cut it together myself because, you know, that's all that, that's what Stargate has always been to me. It's been, it's very linear. There are very few episodes like Memento Mori that start you off in the middle mm. and then work your way back. But starting off with the punch does have its pluses. 
the first of being. I, I wasn't expecting it. And it's good to get something that you didn't expect. All these people shooting out of the puddle into yeah, the darkness. Yeah, it's quite a distance. Is, is kind of a visceral visual. And mm-hmm. uh, so I liked starting out with that. I liked starting out with the Destiny. And it's uh, abandoned, and then it it's apparently drops out of FTL because it's detected this incoming wormhole, I think. Uh, and... Uh, we see lights coming on. The ship is sort of coming alive, anticipating yes. that the wormhole is 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 about to be established. The Stargate is is dialing incoming, mm-hmm. and then we see Scott come through. And who is this guy? And what's going on? And I like starting that way. It's um, mm-hmm. it takes some of the suspension away from the evacuation later. I mean, we know that they're going to go. We know where they're going to go. Yep. Um, so, yeah, there are pluses and minuses as to playing it linearly or non-linearly. For the first two hours, in addition to a, a long-term viewer, I really tried to watch it like I had never seen Stargate before. And, hmm. you know, not on purpose to say, ooh, how does it do this way? But I tried to pretend that I was someone who had never seen the show before, and I'm asking myself questions if I had just turned the show on, like, okay, he's passing through a ring of shimmering water, and he's entering this room, and you know when when Daniel comes along and starts explaining you know on on the tapes what the Stargate is and everything like that, I'm asking myself, is this enough information for this audience? Mm-hmm. And if I was coming at this fresh, and they did what they set out to, which is to create an opportunity for themselves to start the show successfully for new viewers, mm-hmm. more than Atlantis did, because Atlantis really was a spinoff, um, and starting the show at Icarus Base. Uh, instead of SGC, more so emphasizes that. I love that Daniel cameo. We've heard Shank say in interviews, and he's told us that his his appearance in air is just kind Brief. of a pop in and, and wave high and pop out. And I thought using the character of Daniel Jackson to do what's basically books on tape to uh, get quick <laughs> quick people acclimation of, of new people to the Stargate program. It's, I mean, that was, that was funny. And Michael played it with a, a little bit of a spring in his step. I thought it was funny. Yeah. What about Jack being back? Jack, I think he looked good. I was nervous uh, seeing some photos and seeing the trailer and, and knowing, as some fans have talked about online, that uh, he looks like he's put on a little weight, but he did have surgery earlier this year, and his doctor told him to stay off his feet. So um, he's, you know, he's he's not a 1997 season one of SG-1 Spring Chicken anymore, no. but uh, he's still got it, and uh, I, I thought that he looked good. I was afraid... Well, not really afraid. I, I knew that, that they'd be able to pull it off. I didn't want him to be in the way in this episode. Yeah. I want him to compliment the episode. Yeah. And he does. He does very much. There needs um, to be a, an organic sense of the Stargate program on Earth is bigger than the SGC. General Landry in the SGC has a boss. It's Jack O'Neill. He's back in Washington. Uh, Jack needs to be involved in this sort of thing. There's sort of a, you know, Jack's not really front and center in the story. Because he shouldn't be. He's he's the guy back at in Washington headquarters, right? Right. And then Amanda is also in it. Very briefly, yes, she had a brief cameo as well in command of the Hammond. Nice tip of the hat to Don S. Davis. Yeah, I think it was a good use of of those three SG One cast members. It was it was not like, well, you know, we're holding your hand and sending you off, or we're participating in your first adventure. It was just sort of a the, the, the Icarus base and the people who are on it and people who are part of the research project are part of the Stargate universe. And mm-hmm. so it's it, these people showed up in a nice 
little complimentary way, I think. We have a lot of characters to talk about. We're never going to get to introduce them again like we can in this podcast. Nine of them. Nine of them. Well, let me ask you this. Last week, uh, before we had seen the show, we talked about, you know, which characters are you going to be keeping your eye out for the most? So now let me ask you, which character or characters really stood out to you, whether you were watching them or not? I said last week Brian J. and Ming-Na. Did I not? I think I did. Maybe in one more person, too. Yeah. Um, But the one who stood out in part one and part two, hands down for me, is uh, David Blue as Eli. Yeah. I was expecting that I would enjoy him. I did not realize that I would enjoy him this much. I saw saw Eli walking around, and I'm, I'm like, you know, this guy is kind of like David. You know, I know David pretty well, and I mean, this is you in a lot of ways. You think that that's me? In a lot of ways, yeah, plus the brilliance. Oh, well, thank you. I think part of it is the Kino. We take on the perspective of the Kino often, as emphasized by the little shades around the rim of the screen when we're in Kino Vision. Kino POV. I think we're going to start hearing it to be called Kino Vision. I'm going to place bet on that, but... Uh, He's always looking into it and, you know, commenting with his expressions. Uh, A couple of times that happens, and that really endeared me to him very quickly, (laughs) more than I expected to, more than perhaps I should even admit. At the end of that two hours, I was rooting for him. I mean, he's the the first person after, what, 14 years now who holds his breath before he walks through the Yeah, that was good. That That was was funny. And the can I get some pants line? Exactly. After being good. beamed onto the Hammond. And to have him start off playing Stargate Worlds. And Stargate Worlds is near and dear to me. Yeah. Because I worked on it for a while. I worked with that team. Yeah. So, and that was a huge conversation piece at the party in, in San Diego. Man, oh man, I brought along Irene Matar. Irene had, uh, <laughs> had done the animation for the character that he plays <laughs> in the show. So nice. he was thrilled about that. Oh, so you're a game developer, so let's. So he talked with her for a while, That's but cool. he was the one that really took my took me away. He's exactly what I expected, which was was he provides the audience perspective of the the newbie to the Stargate world, which is kind of ironic because of all the actors. David Blue is the one who's the most well versed in Stargate. Seen every episode. He's a fan. But he, uh, Eli, the character, he is an everyman. Thinking about this as I say it, I don't think Stargate has ever had an everyman. I don't think Stargate has truly had an everyman in its main cast. Jonas was a little. Uh, in some ways, he was an everyman. Yeah. Um, just sort of in the, in the wide-eyed naivete. But yeah. um, much more so, Eli is an everyman. Uh, he's not a, a character archetype like SG-1 and Atlantis had. Some ways. I mean, again, okay, so the, the total slacker genius is, has, in especially science fiction, television, and film, become pseudo-archetypal, but still. He's a gamer, and he lives at home with his mother, and his mother has health problems. And a lot of us can, you know, speak to many of those points, you know. Um, as you told me, and I'm going to take your words from you, we knew more about these characters than we did at the end of the first season of Atlantis mm. with those characters. And we had four more characters to deal with. So I was expecting it to happen, and it still blew me away. That we learned so much about, about these characters? Yes. We are on our way with these characters. You know, this, this, this is not like a, 
a shoot 'em up wow introduction in a couple of ways it is with definitely a couple of scenes mm-hmm. this is a slow percolating love story happening between viewers and and the people on the screen where we're getting to know about them more and more intimately and we're not rushing it we're taking yeah. our time with it we're introducing that Exactly. And you know what? Why not? We're Because we've certainly done the other before. We're introducing that Ronald has, you know, a, a past. We're introducing that Rush has some issues on his own. That Young has some compli- some medical complications. You know, everyone were introduced to a lot of their strengths and a couple yeah. of their weaknesses. Yeah. Now, in, in previous uh, Stargate shows, just based on the, on the plot-driven storytelling, when you get a, an element introduced like say for example young seems to have a medical history uh, in one of his flashbacks he basically he has an attack of some sort when he's with yeah. his wife and and falls seizure. and then when we get back into the present day on the destiny he has a seizure so he seems to have some some pre-existing medical condition and uh, in the former way of storytelling in stargate uh, something like that is only introduced when it's going to be paid off when it's going exactly. to be paid off within the episode for the most part Shepard uh, only has a cold when it's going to save the day. That Shepard and his magic colds, man. Or Rodney has a has a cold and it ends up making him vulnerable to the parasite in the shrine. Yeah. Uh, but here, you you really see that the writers are playing the long game because they've introduced that element of the character's backstory and then they never mention it or touch on it or imply it again mm. for the rest of the premiere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know it's going to come up again. It's part of who the guy is. But now it gives us the sense that Okay, we know something about Everett Young that is 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 part of who he is, but was not germane to this particular story. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly. how you start to get to know the characters, and I love it. I gotta say, you know, last week I said that I was watching Louis Ferreira, who plays Colonel Young, and this guy really did it for me. I think in part one he was a standout for me. Uh, he's a, he's a good actor, and uh, he's really just a investing me already in his character by that that emotional depth Mm -hmm. he spends a lot of his time sick in these first two hours he does i'm looking forward to all of them developing but he in particular did not strike me and there was something going on with young that uh i was kind of curious because i on the internet enough to to know definitively that there is a previous relationship of some sort between Young and Tamara, TJ, Tamara Johansson. And so after the episode, I turned and had a, had a brief uh, conversation with my wife who watched it with me. And that was one of the first things she said. She picked up on it. And it was never expressed. It was never stated. It was all just sort of in looks and glances. And he, you know, when she's trying to save Dr. Sims uh, on the Icarus base during the attack, he, you know, he calls her TJ in a very personal intimate way mm-hmm. and you know that's the sort of of uh thing that that uh, my wife picked up on and saw that there was something there mm-hmm. and that's what i love about the way that this show is is written and is i think going to continue to be written is uh, it treats the audience like they're very intelligent people who can follow these things and you don't necessarily have to have all these things spelled out for you no, they don't have to be even spoken. I knew that that was coming because I got that spoiled to me in the trailer. There are, is definitely going to be the opportunity for adultery here. <laughs> <laughs> There's something going on there. Now, that, that introduces interesting uh, things because uh, we saw, very briefly, we saw uh, Anna Grauer, one of yes, Gate World's lovely. very uh-huh. first interviews back in the day when she appeared in Frozen. 
as uh, Ayana, the ancient woman frozen in ice. She played Colonel Young's wife in that brief flashback, and we know we're going to see her again. We know she did more than that one episode. So you talk about possibilities for adultery. Well, what happens if they use the communication stones and he gets to see his wife, but... She just ha- the person that she just happens to trade bodies with is TJ. They showed us this that kiss in the trailer between TJ and and Colonel Young, and, and I Young? suspect that that's that, her. Uh, that it may be his wife I'll who be comes darned. via the communication stones. So Brian J. Brian was my first interview with the Universe team. He's my age. He's a redneck in many ways, like I am. I mean, we, <laughs> we brought that up at we brought that up in San Diego. You know, we're on the rooftop of the Solomar, and, and I'm saying this place is not my thing. You know, I, I never expect I, I'm not a Hollywood type. And he's looking at me. and He says, "What you think I'm any different?" <laughs> His introduction, I was not expecting. I was not expecting him to be interfaced with a woman. Uh, in oh, his, yes, his second chronologically in his first scene, Stargate's first sex scene. Boom, chicka, bow, wow. Did you recognize the uh, the actress who plays Vanessa James? No, Julia Anderson, who since uh, changed her last name, uh, I believe she got married, but uh, she played Willa in ah. Stargate Atlantis season three episode Irresistible. She must have had her hair pinned back. Yeah, one of one of uh, Lucius's buxom wives. You and I met Willa. We did. We sure did. We and met her man, on set. was she buxom. And now she is Vanessa James. I got to tell you, I was really hoping that uh, Universe wouldn't have gone as mature as uh, showing up as having a sex scene. Um, I know cr- some critics will give the show more credibility because of that, because they det- yeah. they feel that that's more mature. That was my one objection to the first two hours. I know that it, I know that a lot of people feel it's okay. I felt that it was unnecessary. It certainly will make a lot of critics uh, sit up and say, "Okay, I believe now this Stargate show is not like the other ones." Yeah, that is true. And because uh, there's uh, really no um, denying what they were doing, as he begins to grow a relationship with a certain other character, that's going to complicate things too. And of course, by design. Yeah, I think that's the point. Because in part one, we see he's uh, he's a ladies' man. He's he's getting it on with a fellow officer, uh, mm-hmm. apparently against regs. She's she's uh, listed in the credits as a second lieutenant, so I think he's her superior officer. And then later in the show, in part two, after Chloe's father dies, they they seem to be growing closer, shall we say? Mm-hmm. It's about all you can say in the first episode. Could you see Chloe's father's death a mile away, or what? Yeah, I, I could. That was pretty obvious, I think, to everyone that the senator was not going to stick around. I liked his roughness and at the same time his immediate willingness to come to bat and save his daughter's life at the expense of his own. Yeah. He recognized that his time was limited. He had some major problems and all he was he was doing was um, postponing the inevitable. So he went in there and he took that chance and Greer let him. Yeah. What an interesting character, Greer. Holy cow. This is Ford done right. <laughs> you know, this is this is giving a, a character an identity and doing it with style. Mm-hmm. What the hell was that? <laughs> <laughs> He's got style, that's for sure. Oh, man, that was good. He has attitude, and he makes you want to say, go get him, Ron. <laughs> yeah. We don't know what he did. 
No, but, we don't. Uh, we know that it was... I don't know, based on the fact that Young was willing to drop the charges because the base was under attack. Obviously, you don't want to... If you think the base is compromised, you don't want to leave him in there to die. It makes me think that maybe it wasn't huge, not like he killed somebody. But uh, no, Ming no. Na's character, Camille Ray, thought that, that Greer ought to still be in yeah. detention. That was the Greer scene that I liked most, I think, or one of them. He, he looked like he was going to go after this uh, civilian, and there was nothing that was going to stop him. And he just happened uh-huh. to get a radio call. He's very much a loose cannon. Um and perhaps a danger to himself and everyone else. Uh, but in terms of what will come next for all these characters, I think I am most going to be most interested in him. I think that's true, and I'm also the most nervous about Ronald Greer. There's the fear that uh, he may be the next uh, Ford and, and just get written off because they're not sure what to do with him, but that doesn't seem to be the case. They're, they're using him, and they seem to have a really good sense of who the character is mm-hmm. going into it. No, what I was going to say was uh, he's got an edge to him that kind of makes him like Sawyer on Lost. Mm-hmm. And at some point, you've got to get to know what's underneath that that uh, facade, that, that anger. You've got to know where the anger comes from and be mm-hmm. able to feel some sympathy with it. Mm-hmm. To know what makes the guy tick. Otherwise, you know, he can't just be walking around angry and dangerous all the time, and we don't know why. With Lost, you know, we had to get to the point uh, pretty early in Season 1 where we found out you know, who Sawyer was, where he came from, why he was such an a-hole. Mm-hmm. And couldn't help but say to ourselves, you know what, if I had been through that, maybe I would have taken a similar path. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the great thing about, about entertainment. You know, seeing yourself in everyone, in one way or another, ooh, I would do that if I was faced with that decision. Now, Camille Ray, I don't think there's a whole lot to say about her right now because they originally wrote the character as a, as a guest star, possibly recurring... Uh, she's the IOA representative, um, for those who don't necessarily know. The IOA is a, an international group back on Earth that is basically in charge of somewhat calling the civilian shots. Civilian oversight. But uh, funding and civilian oversight of basically everything related to the Stargate program. Yep. Stargate Command, uh, all the ships that we have flying around out there, Atlantis, and now the Icarus base and the Icarus mm-hmm. project. So in a way, she's like a... They answered to her, sort of. You know, the chain of command is they answer to General O'Neill and to the president uh, on the military side, but but uh, she works for the organization mm-hmm. that they answer to on the civilian level. Now she's in human resources, so she's kind of like a peon. She's a rep. <laughs> but, um, you know, they wrote this character, and then they cast Ming-Na, uh, who's a fantastic actress, uh-huh. and uh, loved her so much and wanted to continue playing with the character that she turned into... A significant enough character that they made her basically part of the main mm-hmm. cast. So we will see much more of her. She has no friends in this pilot. She is hostile. She's a bureaucratic bitch. You'd think that there's not a lot of potential there, but there is. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with that character next. Yeah, yeah. Because they hadn't I'm... originally intended for her to be a main player, and she became one. And when that happens, you know it's going to be interesting. But I think it's fair to say up until this point, she's pretty two-dimensional as a character. Yes. So what about Telford? Again, Lou Diamond Phillips is a big movie star, and yeah. he's hardly in this thing. I know. He was in it for much less than I anticipated. You know, I had, this, I had a feeling when I saw him in the F-302 that he wasn't going to make it out. He was yeah. going to fly to the Hammond and uh, and go back with them and stay on Earth. But a good actor. You know, for the few lines that he had, he did them well. <laughs> well, we don't need another young 
another Colonel Young on the expedition. You, you don't. don't need two colonels butting heads saying, I'm in charge, no, I'm in charge. Yeah. That, that, that butting heads relationship of who gets to be the leader is sort of between Young and Rush yeah. in a lot of ways, the civilian scientist versus the highest-ranking military member. Mm-hmm. So you don't need Telford on the destiny. Now, the interesting thing that I'm so glad that they included this character is he's not there. He was supposed to lead the team through the Stargate mm-hmm. if Rush figured out the ninth Chevron. Mm-hmm. He, Telford was supposed to lead that team through the gate, and he didn't. He's the one who didn't make it. I recently saw a comment from Lou Diamond Phillips. I just want to add that he said that when he, he talked about with the producers about doing the show, it was uh, it was with full knowledge that he didn't have a whole lot to do in the premiere, but uh, that they were planning on using him in the future. So again, I think this is a guy we're going to see a lot more of. Well, what about TJ? Bold and beautiful. Yes, certainly that. She's the, the sort of character who strikes me as immediately sympathetic. Yeah. And in sharp contrast to a character like Greer. And it's not just because she's she's a doe-eyed woman uh, victim. She's not a victim. She's actually the one in there taking care of people, helping mm-hmm. people. But um, I don't know. There's something about her in the, the scenes that we got to see her in trying to save Dr. Sim's life. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's a short flashback of her going in and talking with Camille, uh, and we learn the fact that TJ uh, is thinking about leaving the military and was ecstatically happy uh, at Icarus Space up until recently, and then got a scholarship to a school in Seattle and, and yeah. was was on her way out. So it's someone who didn't necessarily want to be there. She's she's stuck on the destiny. Yeah. Interesting. I, I like her so far. I don't think that we've gotten to know her nearly as much as some of these other characters. Mm-mm. And so far, what intrigues me most, again, is that that relationship with Young. That exactly. previous relationship that seems to be bubbling under the surface. We don't mm-hmm. know if it, was, if it was romantic, if it was sexual, if it was adulterous. We don't know yet. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, her relation to that character, her relationship with Young is, is what's interested me so far. The other beautiful face to look at is Chloe Armstrong, played by Elise Levesque. What did you think of this character? This was, uh, again, one of the characters when the the show was first being cast and we started learning the names of these characters. This was the controversial one. I figured that they wouldn't write her to be such a uh, rich little brat. They wanted to write her accessible. And I got that going in. But they also have her very vulnerable. She's the vulnerable woman on the ship. I think she could easily degenerate into the damsel in distress every couple of weeks. But I think they'll be smart about it. She's young, and she's uh, great for Matthew Scott. We can see that one coming. You know, there's, there's a relationship between them that is, um, that is kicking around. The young lovers. And again, I have to wonder, uh, when Scott goes and, and consoles her on the observation deck, uh, you know, we saw him doing a hot chick earlier and and i have to wonder how much is this guy really a nice guy who's trying to be there to support somebody who doesn't have anyone or and how much is he just trying to get into her pants you think he could be a player i don't know playing everyone on the ship i don't know i don't think that it's necessarily malicious uh, like the way that rush seems to be playing everyone but uh, maybe in the back of his head it's uh you know he's he's laying the groundwork Mm -hmm. so the big kahuna is the Leading man, Robert Carlyle, plays Nicholas Rush. You don't know the score with him. All you know is that he looks at a woman and weeps profusely. Uh, and that he wants to access the 
Holy Grail, which is the destiny. We do not know why. We do not know if his intentions are for being able to put his name on the ship. Hmm. You know, being able to say that, yes, I found it. Be the one to make the discovery. Uh, along with uh, Columbus and Magellan and so many other peoples. Do- not Nicholas Daniel Rush. Jackson. Yeah. Dr. Jackson and then Nicholas Rush. You know, uh, I think Daniel's appearance later in the year may, may give more uh, indication as to that. We don't know if it's malicious. If he wants to use the ship for some kind of sick, twisted power game. Which I would be excited about if they tried, decided to go that way. Create a character that was, when it came down to it, evil. Well, he's the wild card, man. For two years... The ninth Chevron project was his entire life, yep. uh, and there is, seems to be a woman in his past. We don't know if is if his joining up uh, with the Stargate program maybe has something to do with that. If there's a broken relationship because of that, but the ninth Chevron is what he's all about, and he doesn't know where it goes, as far as we can tell. We, he doesn't know that there is an ancient ship flying around the universe on the other side. But uh, yeah, when he gets there, he's building a relationship in some ways with this ship. And earlier in the show, you you called Destiny uh, a tenth character. I really get the sense that, especially at the end of part two, that Rush is... He sees the ship as, as, a, as a character, as a being, because he's, he's absolutely convinced that the ship has basically... He told it that they were in trouble, that they had this need, and the ship has now led them to what they need. He was running several searches. Did you catch that? For, yeah. for references to what they were needing. He was convinced that the ship would take them to the right planet. At the very end of part two, he said, no, the others are blacked out because the ship blacked them out. Yeah. We need to trust the ship. The ship wants us to go here, and he trusts the ship in, a, in uh-huh. a really interesting way. He's a wild card, and man, he is a massive, massive manipulator. Mm-hmm. He's an expert at manipulation, the likes of which we have not seen on television in recent memory as far as i'm concerned you know what i was thinking of benjamin linus when i was watching him ah Uh, that's interesting i'm hoping that he is going to be this show's benjamin linus i'm hoping that they'll be able to write him in a way that um is along some of the great dialogue of benjamin linus yeah yeah. so far he's he's kind of like the angry impatient benjamin linus because yeah Ben, ben knows how to play it cool but he's and... also playing it very much. I mean, he's playing it like if they push him too far, they kind of he kind of plays the victimized card too. Yeah, there's kind of a desperation about yeah. him, and it's it's really interesting. The scene in part one uh, where he's standing in the command room with the senator who's just gotten there, and Young and Telford and and all these guys, and and they try the first dialing attempt uh, of of the ninth Chevron address. And it fails. He's he's sort of playing the congenial scientist. Oh, it should have worked, and oh, we'll do our best. And you know, he's sort of kowtowing to the military, and he's got this creepy smile on his face that's totally manipulative. And you know that he's looking, I think, for a chance to be in charge. Mm-hmm. And when the evacuation goes to the destiny, especially when Young comes through injured, he grabs that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And he wants to be in charge. He's power-hungry in a way, but he's also incredibly manipulative. The way that he manipulates Chloe, oh my gosh, after her father dies, mm-hmm. I just got to say, I felt throughout the first hour and a half like just about every character wanted to, to smack him senseless. Mm-hmm. You see it a few times, you know, Young wants to deck him. Scott is not happy with him. 
and uh, a few other characters, I, I felt like he was pushing the line with them. And it's Chloe, of all people, who just blindsides him and knocks him over and starts beating on him. I love that it was Chloe. <laughs> but then yeah. he turns around and st- he just goes full on into manipulation mode. Mm-hmm. And it's just, mm-hmm. I mean, it's slimy. The one thing that I picked up on, and maybe it was a little too over the top. Maybe it was a little too much. When people are flying through the wormhole, he goes to the top of that balcony, sees the chaos below, and he smiles. That says a lot. I think it's very telling for what his ultimate priorities are. I mean, I kind of got an Emperor Palpatine, everything is proceeding as I have foreseen vibe about him, you know? (laughs) This guy knows the score more than anyone else. Do not kid yourself. What did you think of his uh, announcement that he had used the communication stones and General O'Neill had placed him in charge? I didn't believe him. He was a big fat liar? I thought he was a big fat liar. I thought he took over Dr. Lee and did something to cut off communication with the other side. Yeah, I thought I thought there's no way that Jack... Part of it is that we just know Jack. But there's no way that Jack put him in command. Um, and uh, I don't know. I kind of feel like the way that... Okay, it was Young who pulled the communications terminal, that, that silver box that it was yes. inside of. It was Young who pulled that out of the supplies and put it in his backpack and took it through the Stargate. And then it was Rush who grabbed it when Young was out of commission, went exactly. and used it. Then he came back and said, he told the room of, of people in the gate room that he, Rush, was the one who brought it along. I'd say that Rush was the one that buried it all under all of that equipment at Icarus. You, know? you think he wanted to be cut off, potentially? I think he wanted to be cut off. And, well, you know, if that's really the case, then he probably would have gotten rid of that box. So putting it under a few crates obviously did not do the job, and Young knew exactly where it was. So I don't know. Well, but I think if it was up to him, he would have been. they would have been immediately cut off. If he is lying about Jack putting him in charge, I, I think that that's not something that you can hide for very long because, you know, obviously when Young wakes up, he's going to want to go back to earth himself and mm-hmm. figure out what's going on so it makes me think that there may be a skirmish over those stones that rush may not want to mm-hmm. give young or anyone access to use them i'm surprised that they're not under lock and key i really am and i would be surprised if they don't wind up missing at some point so there are the nine characters yes and we've talked about them a lot you talked about the music uh, a bit at the beginning and i just wanted to give my take on the music as well i, I it bothered me frankly. To be perfectly honest, a lot of it I did not like. Was it distracting, bothering? Or Uh, was it just not your taste, bothering? Okay, let me qualify. It's different, and I like different. I can definitely get used to it. There's a a nice, melodic, haunting quality to some of it that I think is is really interesting and really appropriate to the Destiny. Uh, So I shouldn't give a blanket statement that it bothered me. Uh, Some (laughs) of the music bothered me, and what it was was the piano cues, the piano playing on some of the emotional stuff. And I don't recall offhand what scenes they were. I think one of them towards the end was was Chloe mourning. Uh, But there's just a really uh, deliberate, uh, almost sappy piano playing over the top of it, which was, for me, it was a little too on the nose. When Joel goes emotional, he plays piano. He generally plays high notes. I'd like to talk about the tenth character for a second, though, if I may. Please. Now, since I seem to have something to talk about with this character, did you notice the ship has a heartbeat? No. In the music? Sound effect. In certain chambers, 
the ship has a heartbeat. Hmm. A, a throbbing. And I equate it to a heartbeat. I, I, I equate it to making us recognize that it is there and that it is alive. Not the pulsing of the engine? It, it's a pulsing of something. Now, I'm not saying that it's an actual heart and that's the center where all the oil goes through and everything like that. But it's a heartbeat. It has that bump, 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 that rhythm to it. And all I equate that as is I am here. Don't mm. forget that I'm in the background. Mm. Uh, and that's one of my favorite characters that I'm looking forward to. Yeah, I hope that the ship becomes a much bigger part of the show, bigger than Atlantis, the city was in that show. Please, bigger. Um, because it's the show's about the characters, and I want to learn about the characters and their relationships with each other. But if it's five years of just walking around on rusty sets, emoting, then I'm going to get tired. So we have a life support problem. You know, it seems like in any time that there's acid on television, someone has a number two pencil to grab the acid and watch it steam. <laughs> because we know that the ancients set this ship uh, on its course ahead of them they intended to get here by Stargate and then crew the ship and they never came so mm-hmm. what did they supply the ship with for themselves thousand year what old did they rations stuck it with? Yeah. spoiled yeah. rations there's got to be in, something in there in terms of food what are they going to eat million year old power bars they're going to have to eat something. We've talked, as, as the episode details and, and episode titles were coming out over the course of 2009, we talked about the fact that, that the writers have chosen to start the show focusing on very basic problems, the problems of survival. We need to breathe. We need food. We need water. Um, what do you think about the fact that, especially in part two, one of the reasons why the episode is kind of slow going is because it's, it's just about this basic problem. We have to breathe, and... In order to be able to breathe, we have to seal this door, and we don't yeah. know how we're going to do it. It's a nice little ethical dilemma to start off the show with. It's kind of basic. Yeah. Somebody has to be sacrificed. What I like about the way that they did it is not just that, oh, we have a moral dilemma, who's going to go, but it's the way the other characters reacted to that moral dilemma. It wounds one of your nine characters. So uh, Colonel Young is uh, the Jack O'Neill of the Destiny. He's going to go do it himself. He's yep. not going to order anybody to go do it. Rush wants to look at the manifest and find the person he deems to be the <laughs> oh, least valuable. The least valuable in terms of skills. Could and you believe order that? him or her to go save the rest of them. What a bastard. My goodness. And then, of course, the, the uh, third response to the situation was also self-sacrificial. It was, it was uh, Senator Armstrong, and that was all about... I think the love of his daughter. The chances are that I'm that of me coming out of this are not good. So, you know, I'm going to do this for her. That's what I find most interesting about part two is not just that there's this moral problem, this little ethical dilemma, but the way that those different characters react to it in such different ways. And again, we learn about who they are and what they're made of. You know, how much more do we know about Rush and about Young because of their response to that problem? Not so much about their familial history or anything like that, but their character, what they're made of. Yeah, they're metal. It's time for Quibbles! So now that we've gotten back into episode commentary on the podcast, we wanted to come up with a new section. And this uh, Quibbles is going to be the nerd section, I think, more than anything. This is this is two guys who really analyze the show in its bits and parts. And, analyze, uh, analyze, analyze the show. Analyze the show and how it fits into... 15 seasons of Stargate mythology. So, nerd it up for me. It'll be related to the episode that we just discussed. Yep. What do you think about, instead of it being an address, a nine-symbol address, a nine-symbol code? 
Does that not make sense in so many ways, considering there's no way that they would have been able to tell where in the universe the destiny was? It makes sense in every way. I mean, obviously the guys know gate technology as well or better than we do. So they know how this stuff works. One thing that's always bothered me about Stargate is it's a production necessity that all the symbols on the Stargate are star constellations as seen from the surface of Earth. Mm-hmm. There's a production necessity in that you can't change the symbols every single time SG-1 goes through the gate and then have them try and figure out what the address back to Earth is. But because of that, there's also only like 39 points of origin. And there are some some symbols that don't appear on every gate. You know, we hear a lot of times in SG-1, they're talking about the fact that this is the only symbol that's unique, so it must be the point of origin. Yeah. Um, I think that was Sam in Solitudes back in Season 1. Yeah. They explain it eventually by talking about the fact that the ancients, the race who built the Stargates, were on Earth. This was yeah. th- this was their home base, so it makes sense that that, that would be their point of reference yeah. for creating the symbols. Um, but the way that Stargates dial then don't it, it doesn't really work the way that Daniel Jackson explained it in the original feature film, where it's six points in space pinpointing an exact destination it's literally transmitting a signal to a certain quadrant of space if you go back to that original explanation this point of origin thing that they do with the ninth chevron makes total sense because as you said the destiny is not in a fixed point of space it's constantly moving Mm -hmm. let alone being in, in another galaxy so it makes sense that the ancients instead of coming up with a spatial coordinate system that they would actually hard code one particular Stargate address mm-hmm. to go to the destiny. Like a combination. So when you have a signal that is a combination lock, I, I equate it to a cell phone. You have a signal going off into a network and then somehow managing to beam down to the specific cell phone that you're looking for. So how does that work for the destiny? How does the destiny know that it's being called? Where is that signal coming from? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking thinking and this is probably wrong but the answer for me would be there is there is a receiver somewhere out there in the universe that is picking up this signal and is beaming it down to the destiny Hmm. maybe it's something that we can visit that's out there somewhere now how does it know to dial the destiny how does the destiny know that it's being dialed since there is not a specific beam of energy being transmitted directly at it yeah because there's no specific point in space for it to go that's an interesting idea. I would love to see if there was some technological part of the Stargate network that we hadn't discovered yet, like some sort of hub transceiver. My guess is that the easier way of explaining it, the, the Stargates have correlative updates. They talk with each other and the Destiny, because it has a Stargate that's on the Stargate network, just that Stargate keeps in touch. Mm-hmm. So the rest of the gate network, the Stargates themselves, know where it is. So you think the Destiny, when it jumps out of out of FTL, it sends out a ping that says, I'm here? I would guess that, yeah, that it pings. I'm big on ancient history, you know? Ancient with a capital A. The Ancients. And we know from five years ago, from the series premiere of Atlantis, that the city of Atlantis used to be located on Earth. Several million years ago. And it left Earth quote, several million years ago for the Pegasus Galaxy. Now, from past SG-1 history, we surmise that a lot of that has to do with the fact that there was a plague that the ancients were suffering from uh, in in the Milky Way Galaxy. Mm-hmm. This, for example, is the, the plague that wiped out the ancients who built the time loop machine in mm-hmm. Window of Opportunity. So, and the, the plague that, that Ayana, 
who is the ancient who appeared in Atlantis at the beginning of Rising. She later turns up frozen, has this plague. Mm-hmm. So that's the She's point of connection. Ayana's a carrier of the plague, and she got left behind when Atlantis left. Uh, in this episode, Rush says that uh, Destiny was launched hundreds of thousands of years ago. Yes. There's a big difference between hundreds of thousands and millions, and we know that Destiny was launched from Earth. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of wondering, is is he underestimating? And in fact, Destiny is much, much older. Because going into the show, I expected Destiny to be older than Atlantis. Or is he accurate? And if, if that's the case, and Destiny was launched hundreds of thousands of years ago, then that means that ancient civilization on Earth either persisted for millions of years after Atlantis left, or at some point, ancients came back to Earth, ancients who had survived the plague, uh, and before they ascended, they launched the Destiny. And he got, don't forget, he got this nine chevron address from the Atlantis database. So while the database was still being used by ancients, they were aware ah, of the project. I hadn't thought about that. Why does the Destiny gate have chevrons? On Destiny, there's a ball uh, to the top of the gate, which is apparently functioning as the locking mechanism. Uh, right. The chevrons are not like locking mechanisms. As far as I can tell, they're there for show. For decoration. Uh, <laughs> there is no need for chevrons. And I personally would have no problem with them if they had never put the chevrons on them because there's really no there's really no locking mechanism. If you'll notice on the floor of the Stargate, in front of the Stargate, there is a chevron in the floor that's hard to notice, but it's there. I don't know if that serves any purpose, but that's definitely a quibble. Why are there chevrons? I got nothing to say. Maybe they're there for decoration. That relates to my question of ancient history, which is we thought that this... Stargate, the Destiny version of the Stargate, the steampunk gate, was much, much older than, uh-huh. than the other Stargates that we'd seen before, that it was sort of an analog Stargate, where eventually with uh, Atlantis we get a digital gate in many respects. But if Russia's right and the ship is hundreds of thousands of years old, then that means that the pretty blue digital Atlantis Stargate is actually millions of years older than this steampunk version. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. I, I don't that... get it. The Destiny Stargates sure seem to me like they should be the first generation of Stargates. Now, of course, if you really want to quibble, then you can look at the Ark of Truth, at the scientist who developed the Stargates, and you can see his designs, and they are very clearly the uh, Milky Way gates that he was basing them on. Listener mail. This is Candace from Southern California. I completely love Destiny. I think it's going to be a great series. A bunch of things that I love about it, but just two of the main things. Obviously, the characters, I think, are fantastic already. I'm already loving a lot of them, and especially Eli, which, of course, is you know the ultimate kind of character to put in a new Stargate series because it's going to be the character that a lot of the longtime fans are going to be immediately attracted to because that's like the dream of every crazy Stargate fan is, you know, to find out that this is all real. I love everybody, but the thing that really, really is just already driving me crazy that I don't know about, that I want to know about, that is going to keep me watching is the ship, Destiny. It's just, we know it's ancient. We know it's, you know, comes from the same people who built the gates. It's just, it looks unlike anything we have ever seen from the before. Hi guys, Xenomorph. Overall, I thought it was well done. Very great. The only objections I have to it was the sex scene with Lieutenant Scott. 
in my opinion, that's morally wrong and very distasteful. The exterior of the Destiny is really cool. It reminds me kind of of a Super Star Destroyer, and it was beautifully done. I like the characters. I'm really excited to see how their characters develop. I'm excited to see pretty much everything. Overall, I liked it. It was it was pretty much exactly what I expected in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And this is this is the issue with pilots is there is a long, long publicity cycle. We see lots of trailers, we see lots of TV spots, we read lots of interviews, we see pretty pictures, and we love it and we eat it up and we want it. But I really felt, especially with part one, as though I had I'd pretty much had seen everything and knew what was going on and why these people were doing yeah. this. And there were no surprises. It was kind of going through the motions. Uh, it was it was very entertaining and well done, but I kind of felt like I had been spoiled. Not by spoilers, but by the publicity cycle. Mm-hmm. So part two I found I found more engaging even though mm-hmm. it was slower paced because I didn't I didn't know as much about it. Part one was a lot of setup. You know, it was getting the initial characters in place, you know, the characters who are not involved with the program in place, um, bringing them to Icarus base, the mm-hmm. attack that occurs, uh, and uh, getting them onto the ship. It is all obligatory setup. Yeah. The second one is their first problem. The second one is basically, you know... It really felt like a pilot. It did. It really did. Characters um, literally introducing themselves. Yes. Uh, is there anything wrong with that? Nah. It was a good hour and a half. It was good, but um, in in all to be even-handed about this, I'm not wowed yet, frankly. I, I expect the show is going to grow. Again, it's a slow burn, but I, I have not really been wowed yet. Yeah, and I expected to be wowed in the pilot because everyone was talking it up. I mean, Brian J. Smith, I think, he, and I don't want to quote him specifically, but he says something like he had, in my first interview with him, my only interview with him, he had never quite read anything like it. Uh, so I took that to the bank and was a little disheartened that, you know, I wouldn't say that he was exaggerating. I wouldn't say that all these marketers at MGM that we've been talking to are exaggerating because when I come away from it, it's good. It's, it's a good. good hour and a half of, of TV and I'm excited that I'm involved with it in some small way. Yeah. This is a show that I can see that I'm going to be proud of. And all I can say is bring me more. Well, now that we're back into talking about weekly episodes, new episodes of Stargate every Friday, you'll get the podcast every Wednesday. And the listener question is obvious. It's always going to be the same. So let's not even, I think, call it a listener question. Basically, every week after you watch the new episode of Stargate Universe, tell, tell us, us what, what you thought. thought. And we really don't want to want to be stuck reading your opinions. We want to hear your pretty beautiful voice. Call the podcast hotline and leave us a voicemail. And we want to get we want to get lots of these. We want to hear what you guys have to think about these episodes. So this weekend, tell us what you thought of Air Part Three. Very much looking forward to hearing that. We typically are going to try and record on Sunday nights. That's pretty typical. So you have so, a very small window of opportunity to let us know. Again, I, we had to do this when Atlantis was airing. We have to apologize to fans who are listening in the UK and Australia and elsewhere that you will not have seen the episode yet. But um, still call us. Once you see the episode, call us and... Uh, we may not be done editing it yet. We may be able to slip it in, or we'll certainly include it in the next week's show if there's time. So we want to hear from you. We want to hear, especially if uh, you do have a chance to watch the show. Write us before the weekend is up, if that's the only way that you can uh, 
submit comments to us, but you can call us all the way up until Tuesday, and I'll be sure to plug it into the program. Very good. And that number, again, is 616-712-1647. That's a U.S. number. Uh, If you live outside the U.S., the best way to do it, I think, is to get Skype. And plunk a few bucks into Skype, and Skype International rates are, last we checked, two cents a minute. They're pretty fantastic. So next week we're talking about Air Part 3, and then uh, after this three-part opening to Universe, they're going to turn around and give us a two-parter. So we'll do the episode titled Darkness on October 21st, and then Light is Part 2 on October 28th. Well, that's all the show we've got. Once again, thanks for tuning in this week. David, how can they give that feedback? Two ways. Hotline at 616-712-1647. Long distance rates apply. Or write us in the podcast feedback thread in GateWorld Forum. You have to have a valid account to sign in. There's always good conversation going on in the feedback thread. Again, we want to hear your voicemails if you want to be on the show. Give us a blurb, a small blurb, if we have a chance to read any on the air. uh, A small blurb would be helpful. And then if you want to talk back and forth about the nitty-gritty of this week's episode, head over to the episode discussion thread in GateWorld Forum. From GateWorld, this is David. And this is Darren. And we'll see you right here next week on the GateWorld Podcast. Don't miss us!